the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this KGNW broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the Heart of the City. Well, this is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development at 820 AM The Word. Last week we had a a wonderful conversation with uh, Keegan Linker, the lead pastor at Gig Harbor Nazarene Church in uh, Gig Harbor, Washington. And uh, I want to welcome you today to Heart of the City. Thanks for having me on, Chuck. Well, we had an interesting conversation last week as we were talking about uh, multi-generational ministry and youth youth ministry, youth pastoring. And uh, just to kind of summarize a little bit, you were a youth pastor for how many years? About 12 years, yeah. In the, um, not only in um, uh, Southern California, well, mostly Southern California, yeah. you were in Temecula and yes. then in Pasadena. That's correct. And uh, came up to Gig Harbor how long ago? Uh, in March of 2015. Yeah. Just a little over two years. How, how did that call come for you to come to, King, to, to, come to Gig Harbor? Well, in, in the Church of Nazarene, typically when there's the local churches will put together a search committee, and we have district superintendents that oversee certain areas, and our, hap- our area happens to be the Washington Pacific District, and our current district superintendent actually was my home pastor in Twin Falls, Idaho. Oh, okay. And so for a handful of years, he's been calling and saying, hey, you're ready to take the leap? And I'd say, no, not yet. And he says, well, I'll keep trying. And so when he called, I says, I've got this church in Gig Harbor, and I had no idea where Gig Harbor was. Uh, so I asked my wife, I said, I will always check with my wife. And she just said, well, let's see what God's up to. And so through the process of this search committee, and um, they narrowed down their search process. And with the providence of how God worked out some of the obstacles that were in our way, um, we felt like our only option was to say yes and step in obedience. Yeah, isn't it amazing how the Lord does work and just gives you that confirmation? I mean, it's just like uh, I had a pastor who used to say, "It's a you know it in your knower, yep. right? You just yep. know it in your knower. This is this is God's direction. This is yep. what we're going to stay. Even though it can be very nerve-wracking, yeah, yet absolutely. there's that peace that the Lord gives. That's exactly what it is. And we happened to be walking through a situation with our boy at the time uh, as we were beginning an interview process that had some unknowns for us uh, that kind of led us to some hesitancy uh, with, with our son's with our son was battling some illness at the time. And so we were trying to discover how's the Lord leading in this. And you don't ever want to use your children's health as a fleece on whether or not God is actually at work. It, but that was kind of a part of this journey and the process of, of getting us to Gig Harbor. So how many children? I have two. I have uh-huh. a 10-year-old son and a 7-year-old daughter. Interesting. Yeah. So what was going on with your son at the time? How old was he when you were... Well, he was 7 at the time, but his story kind of carries us back to our time in Temecula. Um, Having been a cancer survivor myself, the type of cancer I had was, was called a germline mutation, which means there was some genetics tied to the possibility of our children, future children, having cancer as well. And so, and those those odds were very high. They were a 50-50 shot uh, mm-hmm. that genetically our children in the future will had 
well, whether or not they were carriers of this germline mutation. And so when I was actually, when I was, my wife was five months pregnant, they did a whole DNA workup on my blood. They were, they were able to identify really like the, the volume, the chapter, the page number, the paragraph, the sentence, and the exact word in my DNA where this, where this mutation existed. And so when our child was born, once our son was born, we were able to go to that specific location in his DNA. And if he carried the mutation, we knew he was going to develop cancer. Wow. And so when he was born in, in July of 2009, um, they took his cord blood and immediately tested that to see for that mutation. And 13 days later, we got a phone call that he did, in fact, have that mutation and would be developing the same type of cancer that I had. And so um, it was that afternoon when he was 13 days old, we got into an ophthalmologist and heard the words, you don't ever want to hear an oh no from your ophthalmologist uh, and said, I see a tumor that's already developed. Um, So we had to not being 13 days old as parents and not new to this whole idea. Thankfully, the specialist in the entire world on this type of eye cancer was at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Uh, we were immediately transferred over there. It was a Friday. I remember we, we celebrated by going to the Dodger game. It was a very depressing baseball yeah. game that night. Yeah. Um, but had our newborn with us and had an appointment for Monday morning in, in, in L.A. We lived about an hour and a half away at the time. And so um, that Monday we went in and discovered that his, he had developed this tumor in, in uterine. And there was nothing we didn't know about it. And so... His eye, his retina had already detached from his eye, and the tumor was about three-quarters the size of his eye. And so mm. when he was 21 days old, he started a chemo regimen oh my. to begin treatment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Big, deep breath there and yeah. lots of prayers. I'm sure you had a lot of people praying, but but what kind of prognosis did they give you? I mean, was that... I've never heard of that, but but what what do they say? Well, the type of cancer is called it's called retinoblastoma, and and it's it typically is a pretty highly fatal. Uh, it's an infancy type cancer that develops in children, typically infants, uh, but carries a high fatality rate if you don't know to look for it. And so, mm-hmm. usually, will those tumors will attach to an optic nerve and just spread like wildfire. Thankfully, we we knew to look for it. I my dad had had it, I had had it, and so. We discovered that they they gave him a, a category three out of four diagnosis, which was really a, at a place where they were just saying we may try and save his eye, but we may just need to take it out depending on what these tumors do. And so um, we almost lost him after his first chemo treatment. He developed an infection in his in his central line, and remember driving 120 miles an hour down the freeway to get to the ER and right. try and get rid of infections and such, but. It was after those first five cycles of chemo that um, they taught us how to be in-home care nurses. Uh, we we do chemo in the hospital and then and then head home and wait for his white blood cell counts to to tank and then start recovering. And we were given daily booster shots to kind mm. of white blood cell boosters to kind of keep his body fighting. And that was our introduction to parenting. Wow! And it was a it was a rough a rough first several months, but uh, that's got to be hard. I mean, it's hard on you, but it's got to be hard on your wife. Yeah. It, I mean, and that's just the hardest part is you watch this new mom um, who's she's such a great and wonderful mother and lover of the Lord. And to see to see a mom who, you know, has carried this child who is now just a part of you um, right. to struggle through that. I mean, it was my therapy through all of this was writing. I, I blogged my son's entire journey um, from the raw emotion of just being a, a parent with a kid who had cancer and what all that looked like. And so 
the, the story kind of continues on that within about six months after we finished chemo, our doctor in L.A. said, you know, we've got to wait and see what these tumors are going to do and determine whether or not we can save his eye. At that time, the tumor that was in his right eye had calcified, his retina had reattached. So he only had, his central vision was blocked in his right eye and only had peripheral vision. And, and over the next six months, we were in a waiting game. It was in that six months, though, we transitioned from Temecula to Pasadena. And so we were about 25 minutes away. We were beginning a new ministry in Pasadena. And a, a, a week, we'd been there just a little over a month and went in to do just a regular eye exam. And he had developed 19 new tumors in his right eye. 19. 19. And so the doctor at that point said, you know, we need to we need to probably take his right eye out. The goal was to try and fight for his vision, but we've reached this place, and we understood that. The week before the surgery, he had developed a weird infection. He he almost had what would look like elephantitis. His face was really deformed. He didn't look like a little boy. We knew something was wrong. Uh, so we went in to have his eye removed, and the doctor came back and said, "I'm not. he's got an infection. I'm not going to risk putting him under. You need to go back to your oncologist across the street. And so we... We ran across the street, did some blood work, went to lunch, came back, and our oncologist said, I don't know how to tell you this, but everything on our microscope says your son's developed leukemia. Mm. Uh, How do you say that to a family, right? And so he said, every ounce of me is so sorry about this, but everything shows leukemia right now. We need to have him admitted um, into the hospital immediately. And he's a year... He just had his first first birthday. birthday. Yeah, just his first birthday. And so... From that point on, we knew we were we were moving from fighting for vision to actually fighting for his life. Um, my wife, within a couple of days, I remember her sitting as we were sort of sitting down in our host, this hospital room, staring at our little boy, wondering what the future held. She just said, "Keegs, I, if we're about to watch our son suffer tremendously, I just assume the Lord take him mm. sooner than later. I don't know as much as I love him now. The more I fall in love with him each day, if my heart can handle that." which I know was a tough statement for her to make. Um, but I, we, as we met with our oncologist, I, I asked him, by this time we were friends, we'd been journeying for a long time, and I said, Coop, what's the realities here? What are our chances of beating this? And he said he has, he has an adult form of leukemia, and he, there are seven subtypes, and he has the most survivable one. It's called inversion 16 um, acute myeloid leukemia, and it carries a 50-50 chance. And he says, if you end up doing a bone marrow transplant, then that might increase it by 10%. And so we said, okay, then we will fight. Um, leukemia cells are really sticky, and so they, they find each other in your blood, and they attach to each other. The reason he had such deformity is that there were these pockets of leukemia that were pushing his eyes out of his head. He had pockets of leukemic cells in his spinal fluid. Uh, at any point, he could have lost blood flow to his brain and... Typically, chemo will knock you into remission after the first cycle, and it didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to meet with bone transplant, bone marrow transplant teams, and that's one of the hardest meetings to sit through because you walk out thinking there's no hope. Hmm. There's no way that we're going to beat this. Um, thankfully, through God's miraculous ways, <laughs> the second cycle of leukemia knocked him into remission. Um, but we still had to remove his eye. Did you? And so... After the first cycle of chemo and his counts recovered, before we did the second cycle, we took him over to the hospital, and the doctor said, I'll do a full exam and come back before I remove his eye, but I'll tell you what I find before I do that. And he came back 15 minutes later and said, you're not going to believe this, but all that chemotherapy is attacking those 19 tumors in his right eye. I think I can save his eye. And so wow, <laughs> we said, okay, Lord, we don't know why you're doing it this way or how you're working, but we're going to just trust you. And so... 
So he laser treated all 19 of those tumors. We didn't remove his eye. Uh, we went through the second cycle of chemo, which in turn knocked him in remission, which we didn't have to do a bone marrow transplant. Um, but for the first six months that we were in this new ministry in Pasadena, my wife and I didn't really sleep in the same bed. Yeah, I was going to say, you got a new... You we got were a bouncing minute. all yeah. over the place. And, you know, we really got everything that you hope and dream the church to be, we got to experience firsthand from that church in Pasadena. They were... They were the body of Christ. They were a presence, knowing in the midst of exhaustion, would sit and hold him all night so we could go sleep. There were people that, that brought us meals with the finest china in the waiting room, saying, I know, know the last time you sat down and had a meal with silverware. So we brought you our, I cooked my best meal and brought you my finest china. We'd break bread together in waiting wow. rooms. And, and so we walked through all the six of those months. and. And in the midst of it, we just saw the people of God be the people of God and a church that supported me and said, we know this ministry is probably not going to get off the ground as fast as we had hoped, but we're going to support you and allow you to do what you need to do. And, and we were able to walk that way. There was, one, there was one distinct day that I, each day you had to get out of the hospital room. You got to take a walk. You got to go just be out there a little bit. And my pastor, who's from my home church, who was the district superintendent out here, called me as I was sitting in a Burger King, just trying to gather my thoughts one morning. And he said, Keegs, I was just thinking and praying for you this morning. And I was doing a word. I was reading the text that says, my grace is sufficient for you. He goes, do you know, do you know what the root word of sufficient is in the text? And I said, you know, Jerry, I'm tired. I don't know. (laughs) He says, the root word of sufficient means just barely enough. Hmm. He says, and I was praying for you and came across that text, and I want to remind you that God's grace is just barely enough for you today. It's not going to be an overabundance. It's not going to be huge amounts, but it's going to be enough. Hmm. And tomorrow when you wake up, it will still be enough to get you through tomorrow. And so, man, I clung to that. Yeah. It was really a pivotal moment in this journey for me and all the writing and stuff that I was doing. And but we were able to, at some point in this process, to really kind of come to a place in the grips that even if God chose to take our boy, we, we still knew that God was good and that God was still up to something. And however he was going to get glory out of this story, we were, we were convinced we were going to walk faithfully in that process. And I, I came to a place where I didn't talk about my son's future. I didn't think he had one. I didn't talk about his second birthday. And because I just really was fairly hopeless at times in this process, but but clung to God's goodness in the midst of all of it. And in the midst of it, not knowing what he was up to or where the faithfulness of God, but there was something happening there. Uh, and so after we got through all those chemotherapies, um, he was given a clean bill of health in March of about 2009. Um, and he was clean for about six years. And then one day he woke up on a Saturday and his right eye was blood red. He had, you couldn't see the white or the pupil or the color of his eye. It looked like he was just solid red, like he was bleeding. And I asked if his eye hurt and he said, no. I said, do you, can you see out of it? And he says, yeah, dad, I can still see like I normally see. And so we went to a soccer game and I wasn't going to take a risk Uh, afterwards. I just said, I can't do this. So I ran him to the ER and, and an ophthalmologist was called in and said, his pressure's good. I just think he popped a blood vessel, and it's just going to take some time to heal. I had sent some pictures to another ophthalmologist that mm-hmm. I knew. It was a Saturday when all this stuff always happens. And I was getting ready to jump on a plane to head to Nicaragua to do a, a pre-mission trip. And my wife said, I'm sure it's fine. Trust the doctors. Go to Nicaragua. So I left, and in the middle of that trip on a Tuesday, I turned my phone on just briefly to download some texts, and my phone blew up with messages from friends saying, we're so sorry, Keegs, we're walking with you. 
we know this is another road and we'll walk with you. And I knew what that meant. I knew right. his eye cancer had returned. And so I jumped on the next plane. I remember still standing in the remote part of Nicaragua with some pastors who held hands and prayed for my boy by name out in the middle of nowhere, Nicaragua, and jumped on the next plane home, flew home. And the doctor said, we just got to get this eye out. And so we just said, that's fine. And at this point, he's seven. And so he can remember he, all of he this knows stuff. Now. He knows what's going on. And right. how do you walk with that? And Was he afraid? You know, he wasn't afraid. He, he, he still rem- I still remember him saying, Dad, I, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You know, him consoling his parents was really like, Dad, if I'm sick and we got to get the sick out, let's get the sick out. And yeah. so, so that's what we did. And we took his eye out and thought it was over. The doctor came in and said, I hate to tell you this, but all the locations of those tumors were right next to a blood source. We think it leaked into his blood. Mm. And we need to do six more cycles of chemotherapy. And we were devastated. Yeah. Um, but, but we knew God was up to something. We just didn't know what. And so... We went through those next cycles of chemo, those next six months. And at this point, my seven-year-old knew how to read his body. Every time he'd take a chemo, about 14 hours later, he'd start getting sick. Right. He'd throw up a handful of times, but then almost to the clockwork, he'd throw up and look at me and go, Dad, that was the last one I can eat. And every single month he was able to do that. He knew how to read his body and a seven-year-old should not have to do that. Yeah. (laughs) But at seven, he was able to do that. And we walked those six cycles of chemo. And in this process is when we began right at the last cycle of chemo, we started an interview with Gig Harbor. And and it was a month after that we did a blood draw and his blood showed that he had issues with his bone marrow. And so we told the church that we weren't going to talk and continue the conversation unless our son had a clean bill of health because we had our whole medical team in Southern right. California. But our oncologists say your chemo stays in your blood till for three months. And so we needed to do a blood draw at three months, which was November 20th of 2014. And we said, if his blood is clean, we'll keep talking. And sure enough, November 20th, his blood was perfect. And so we said, we'll keep talking. And so that's how we ended up in Geek Harbor. And he has been, he's been healthy as all get out since that day. And we, (laughs) as I look back, I don't wish it on anyone. You don't ever wish an experience like that on anyone, but who I am in Christ now, I never would have known without Mm -hmm. walking through it. And kind of understanding that suffering in the Christian faith is almost kind of like a necessity of the, the faith walk that we walk as the people of God. And so, but I wouldn't trade the experience for the world either. And so we've written our, his entire story on paper and we've published it. I have it in two volume form. Oh, really? From all my entire journey and all the comments that every person ever made. And so someday when he's old enough and is able to say, dad, what was really this all about? I can say, here's your whole story. Yeah in book form from your parents' raw emotion. You know, yeah. Here's the whole thing. So. Oh, well, that'll be a valuable yeah. um, testimony for him. Yeah, absolutely. Know? And thanks to God, our seven-year-old daughter has never had any medical complications, and she talks just as much as her daddy does. And <laughs> our son is just as introverted as his mother. Uh, and uh, so isn't that interesting how that works? How two totally different people <laughs> yeah. can come from the same two people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Well, we're speaking with uh, Keegan uh, Lanker, and he's the uh, lead pastor at Gig Harbor in Nazarene Church. You had shared a story uh, when you were speaking to the pastors uh, about this uh, this lady in your church uh, who yeah. uh, was was trying to teach him about tithing. Yeah. Share that story. Yeah, this was a sweet old lady that in all the stuff that I had, this, the handful of years that I had been working with Intergen Ministry at, in, at Pasadena Nazarene, that she kind of came to me one day and 
she was a sassy little lady and said, you know, Keegs, there's more I can do for the youth and besides praying and giving money. And, and so she used to come to all the classes I teach on this, and she had started meeting some of the young adults that were part of our church community. But she came to you one day after class and said, Keegs, I, I want to teach your boy about tithe. Can I do that? And I said, well, Edie, how do you want to do that? And she said, well, you know, when I was a little girl in the church, there was a gentleman that came to me and taught me all about tithe and explained it to me. And, and I was excited about how that could look and, and, and learned all about tithe through this gentleman. But I want to teach your boy using chemotherapy as a way to teach your boy about tithe. And every time he has chemo, I want to give him 10, $10 bills and then teach him about tithe. Can I do that? And I said, well, yeah, sure. I think that's fine. She goes, well, I got my first packet right here. And I said, okay, well, why don't we go get him? So I sprinted down to the children's area because my boy's an introvert. And I grabbed him. I said, hey, buddy, there's a lady out here that wants to te- tell you a story and talk to you. I want you to use your manners and, and be respectful. And he said, okay, Dad. So he sat down, and she knelt down on his eye level. And she began to say how sorry she was for how sick he was. And she said, but she wanted to teach him about a word. She wanted to teach him a word called tithe. She said, every time you have to take this yucky medicine to make you better, I'm going to hand you 10 $10 bills. And you get to keep nine of them. But one of them you have to give back to the church, hmm. and that's called tithe. And then she said, I want you to tell me what I just said. And he rearticulated what she had just explained. And, and afterwards, uh, for the next six months, every month, he knew after he had chemo that he was coming with 10 $10 bills. And by the end of this treatment, the kid had more money than I did. <laughs> right. Uh, but if you ask him now as a 10-year-old, tell me about tithe. He can mm-hmm. tell you exactly what tithe is. And it was Edie at 86 years old who taught my seven-year-old boy what tithing in the church is. Yeah. And I'm forever indebted to that. This research that Fuller Institute has done really trained and taught me about the importance of all generations valuing one another and sharing life together. And that just happens to be an outcropping and a blessing that I came to from Edie. Well, tell me, we've got two minutes left. Um, invite people to your church. Okay. All right. Tell them about your church. What's your church like? What are they going to experience? What's uh, what's it like? Yeah, this church that we are we meet in a building in Gig Harbor, Washington, that was built in 1913. Uh, it was one of the first sort of buildings out there in Gig Harbor, and it sort of sits. It's the closest closest church to the water. And this group of people, I kind of call them my golden golden retriever crew. They. They just are the friendliest, loving, most kind, warm group of people that you'll experience. I don't ever really have to worry about when a new face comes, hoping somebody will talk to the new faces. I have people that actively look for who don't I know in this space, and they proactively just share the love of Christ with the people that show up. And if you show up there, you will experience that. I don't, you don't even have to tell me you're coming. I can assure you that if you showed up there, this group of people would love you and love you well. Uh, but it's a joy to be able to to share this life with this group of 150 folk, and they've they've taken a big risk by hiring me at 36 at the time, hiring this young kid, uh, the previous pastor when his, was in his early 60s, and I knew it was a risk for them to kind of take a shot on a young kid to see if he has anything to offer a church as a lead pastor, and so I'm learning from them, and they're learning from me, and. It's been a it's been a blessing to be and and humbling to be provided an opportunity to lead uh, in this way. So yeah. Well, we, how how does somebody find out uh, your address and to, is there a website or something? Yeah, you can you can jump on our website. It's uh, it's gigharbornas.org. Uh, there's a map right there that you can click on there and and we just meet right in the heart of downtown. We have an 8:30 in the morning service and a 10:45 service and and both services are identical. Um, they're run the same. 
Um, we really believe that all ages matter, and we try to connect with every generation um, that comes to worship alongside us and hope as they walk out of there that they've had an opportunity to meet with the risen Lord and that he's spoken to their hearts. Yeah. So. Well, if somebody wants to contact you, I know you've got your own uh, y- your email. Uh, g- give us your email. So if somebody's heard your story and they just yeah. want some encouragement or just want to contact you, uh, how can they reach you? Yeah, you can reach me at Keegan, that's K-E-E-G-A-N dot Lenker, L-E-N-K-E-R at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at, at uh, Keegs John. You can track me down on Twitter and my wife and I, some of the ways that God's been blessing us is with opportunities to journey with other families that maybe have been in our situation with kids who had cancers, and we want to love and pray and invest the way we can. So, Well, Keegan, I want to thank you for joining me today on Heart of the City. If you want to hear this broadcast again, you can go to 820amtheWordSeattle.com and click on uh, Local Programs. And uh, click on Heart of the City, and all the podcasts are there of all the stories that you hear each week at this time. Keegan, thank you for joining me today on Heart of the City. Chuck, thanks for having me on. You've been listening to this KGNW special, Heart of the City. For more information about how your pastor or ministry can be featured on 820 AM The Word, call Chuck Olmsted at 206-269-6216 or go to 820amtheword.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.